Hi, everyone. Before we begin, please be advised that this podcast does contain adult themes, and it is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. When you have your first child, it changes your life. You become a different person. Your whole world revolves around them. My daughter, Desiree Robinson, was born March 29th, 2000, at 2.52 p.m. She was the light of my life. My firstborn, my only daughter, my heart, my world. And Desiree made me a better person because she was a beautiful person. This is Yvonne Ambrose. She has straight black hair to her shoulders, and she's wearing a pink blazer. She's sitting at a table and speaking in front of a panel of senators. She's testifying before the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee back in September 2017. She looks small sitting at that big table in front of the microphone, but you can tell she is doing everything she can to stay composed. On December 23rd, 2016, a 32-year-old man by the name of Antonio Rosales was looking through Backpage.com for a child to have a sex with, just like countless others before him. They knew that this is a website that they could go to to engage in sex with minors. He knew Backpage.com was a site to go to in order to find young underage girls to have sex with. During his search, he came upon the picture of my 16-year-old daughter under the posting, new girl in town looking to have fun, which was posted by her pimp. Desiree was driven to Antonio's resident by the pimp with the intents of having sex with this 32-year-old man, a man twice her age. This was the last night of my daughter's life. And her pictures were posted and moderated by Backpage.com. And this was the reason for her demise. On Christmas Eve, December 24, 2016, Desiree, my baby, was brutally murdered. And now my life has changed forever. truth is, Backpage.com and other sites are making millions of dollars by exploiting our children and allowing them to be taken advantage of by predators. If you're going to fix this problem, fix it. So that's what Congress decided to do, to fix it. By February 2018, there was a bill on the House floor sponsored by Ann Wagner. Rob Portman did the same in the Senate. They're both Republicans. Today we bring, Mr. Speaker, H.R. 1865, the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, or FOSTA, to the floor. And we cannot continue to ignore the reality that while the Internet has brought a lot of good things to us, and the Internet has helped our economy to grow, there is a dark side. And this dark side of the internet is why we think it's so important 
for us to address this issue, address it now, so that that next mom, who is out there right now wondering, where is my daughter? She's gone missing. Won't find that she has been advertised online to multiple men. Most importantly, I want to thank the survivors and families who join us today. I'm signing this bill in your honor. And we are all together, politicians, both Republican and Democrat, signing this and representing this to you in your honor. So thank you all very much. We really, very you. much appreciate it. You're very brave. Yvonne's testimony helped spur something we don't really see much in Congress anymore. Rapid action. A bill was written and passed nearly unanimously. The bill's called the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. FOSTA-SESTA, for short. The bill was supposed to keep sex traffickers from posting ads on sites like Backpage and Craigslist. Politicians from both parties voted for this bill because, I mean... How could you not want to help sex trafficking victims, right? It sounds like a worthy goal. Some of the exploitation and trafficking I've seen in my travels has been facilitated online. But the more I look into the bill and the more I talk to people who are actually affected by it, the more I realize something. This bill is having unintended consequences and it just might be hurting the very people it's intended to help. I'm Noor Tagori. This is Sold in America. The unfortunate truth is that before the passage of this legislation, I could go online and I could order a 12-year-old girl to be delivered to my doorstep within 30 minutes. It was that simple. No, these laws they make have a body count. They know that and they don't care. Backpage, uh, they're not looking out for your best interests. Like, my biggest concern isn't being able to sue back page or whatever. I don't give a shit. My biggest concern is I'm homeless and I want a fucking place to stay and I want to be able to eat. There's a lot of people at risk of suicide. There's a lot of people at risk of having breakdowns and meltdowns and things like that. And that's just the natural impact of bills like this. Like that, It was, it was coming. There wasn't anything else you could do about it. Like That's just what was going to happen. I'd love to have you say something. Yvonne, please. She because, lost her daughter, uh, Mr. President. I know that, and I heard, and it's very special, and we'd love to have you say a few words. Yvonne Ambrose was standing right beside President Trump when he signed FOSTA-SESTA in April 2018. He put his hand on her shoulder, and she smiled. I don't want to cry in front don't of Mr. Cry. President. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this is so important to all of us, and I thank you, Mr. President, so much for signing this bill into law. Um, it means so much to our family to lose your child who has been trafficked, which is modern-day slavery, in our country. And thanks to you and everyone here, hopefully there won't be many more after her that have to endure this pain. I have to admit, it's really hard to watch her cry about Desiree. My heart hurts hearing it. You can see how Yvonne Ambrose and everyone in the room are fully committed to putting at least a dent in the trafficking that's happening here in the U.S. But as with most things I've seen on this journey, 
it's more complicated than it seems. So let me explain why. First, you have to understand exactly what FOSTA-SESTA does. There's this thing called the Communications Decency Act, and it was passed way back in 1996. Section 230 of that act says websites and internet service providers are not responsible for things their users are creating and posting. So what exactly does that mean? It means that sites like Backpage and Craigslist, where people used to post ads for erotic services or escort dates, those sites were not held responsible for any crimes their users might have committed. So for instance, let's say a trafficker was trying to sell sex with a person against their will, and they were doing it by posting an ad on Backpage. Backpage itself could not be held liable for that. FOSTA-SESTA changed all of that. Now, websites can, in fact, be charged with a crime if their users are engaging in, quote, advertising the sale of unlawful sex acts with sex trafficking victims. So that would allow moms like Yvonne Ambrose to sue the owners of Backpage for what happened to her daughter. The reaction online was immediate. Craigslist took down their personal section. They were afraid of being sued. Then sites like Reddit also got rid of a lot of their pages about sex work and personal meetings. Backpage was also taken down around that time. But to be clear, that's not a direct result of this law. The FBI actually went after the owners of Backpage for money laundering and other crimes. There's another part of FOSTA-SESTA that's really important here. This law... It's made it very clear that websites can now also be prosecuted not just for facilitating trafficking. Now, a website can also be prosecuted for promoting or facilitating prostitution. That means adults who might be engaging in completely consensual sex work are affected too. And that's where things get messy. We're at a building that's a short walk away from the Capitol, and we're about to meet a group of sex workers who are in D.C. today to lobby against FOSTA-SESTA. I'm here on Capitol Hill with my producer, Eric. It's a bright, muggy D.C. morning, and this is pretty common for our summers. Today is the first ever organized sex worker lobby day, and I'm really here because I want to hear more about the unintended consequences of FOSTA-SESTA. We head upstairs into a room with two long tables full of people, sex workers who have flown in from all over the country. The woman who organized this today, her name is Kate Diadamo, and Eric and I take a seat in the back as she kicks things off. Hey, y'all, so thank you guys for coming. This is um, legit, seriously amazing. Um, This is actually really incredible, um, what's happening. There has... Never been a, uh, at least as far as I know, and as far as everyone around me knows, there's never been a sex worker lobby day on the Hill. And that's for a lot of reasons. A lot of it is that, you know, the stuff that impacts all of us is very often things that we're dealing with at really local levels. So, you know, why would you go to Congress? But as we just discovered like two months ago, we unfortunately need to be there too. And so welcome and thank you. 
and you know we're gonna do a lot of stuff and it's gonna be a giant whirlwind and it's gonna be kind of a clusterfuck and at the end of the day like you guys are part of something that has never happened before and that is really really amazing um to see so um, everyone breaks off into smaller groups and i just start working the room this is my chance to talk to someone who's really feeling the effects of FOSTA SESTA. And I start talking to a woman who calls herself Phoenix Kalita. She doesn't use her real name, and most sex workers don't. It's a way to protect themselves. And Phoenix, she's skeptical the bill will even do what it's supposed to do. For some reason, people thought, like, if we take down places where, you know, traffickers advertise people, that they're just going to stop trafficking. It's like, no, they're fucking in this game already. Like, they have victims lined up. They have victims they've been exploiting. They already are facing, like, the 50-year prison sentence. Like, they ain't lose shit. So now they're doing the same thing as, I don't give a fuck if you can't advertise on Backpage. Go get your ass on the street. You're going to get the money one way or another. And they don't care. They obviously don't have regard for the people that they're exploiting. So they're just going to find different ways to exploit them. And for a lot of people, that's being pushed further underground, that's being pushed into worse scenarios, that's being pushed into doing street work because the people who are doing the trafficking can't advertise online either. And I mean, police said all these trafficking, you know, cases were online and it's like, but now police don't know where to find trafficked people because you turned off the place that you found them at. So it's not good for trafficked people either. It's not good for anybody. There have been police who have said publicly that Backpage and sites like it were really helpful in finding victims of trafficking. We tried to talk to the police in D.C. who work on finding sex trafficking victims, but they won't go on tape because they're afraid of getting caught up in this political fight. But what Phoenix says to me makes sense. Traffickers aren't just going to stop exploiting kids because Backpage is gone. I still wanted to know, though... How exactly does FOSTA SESTA harm people? Why are you here today, Phoenix? Um, I am here because I have a lot of experience in sex work. I'm here because I do activism in my local sex work community, and SESTA FOSTA is getting my friends killed, and I'm not happy about it. So I'm here. Phoenix tells me that things immediately changed for her and her friends after the bill passed. Um, I was actually sitting in my living room fielding phone calls and texts from everybody who was, like, panicking and freaking out about it. So, yeah. What are the specific outcomes of FOSTA-SESTA? Like, how does that affect a sex worker? Uh, Well... All right. So a lot of people I don't think are aware that like sex workers have their own like private network set up. We have like bad date lists. We have groups where we pass around names. So like if you see a client and they, you know, like violate boundaries or if they're like abusive or if they're like trying not to pay you, we have our own networks where we like, hey, here's this person's information. Here's, you know, their license plate number, their name. Here's a picture. So if this person tries to come to you, don't see, don't see this person. They're not a safe person. Those networks are gone. So now it's like, I don't know, I fucking guess this one might be okay but might not be okay. So that's like an immediate impact there as well as because there are not places to advertise, you have a smaller client pool to pull from. So you can't necessarily be as picky as you would. That's something else I'm seeing is people who are like, yeah, I saw this person before and they completely violated my boundaries or they assaulted me or, you know, we're trying to blackmail me or, you know, we're like threatening to dox me. And now I have to go back and see this client because I don't have other clients to choose from. Like, this is what I got. So it's like putting yourself into immediate danger knowingly because you don't have choices at the moment. 
So can you tell like a little more in detail, like what what are some of your friends like facing yeah. right now? Um, well, I actually have a like running file of pictures of tattoos of people, so that if um, they go missing, I can identify them before their mothers do. Um, that's a thing that's happening. And, you know, a lot of people are homeless, so there's a lot of, like, trying to navigate, like, can so-and-so sleep on your couch tonight? Can so-and-so, you know, like, crash on your floor because, you know, folks don't have housing, so that's going on. And then it's just trying to do, like, a very fucking panic-stricken immediate harm reduction because a lot of sex workers who are, like, newer to the industry never actually did street work, and now they have to do street work, and they make stupid choices, <laughs> like, because they don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't know how to stay safe. So it's, like, a lot of, like, checking, like, have you heard from so-and-so? Did such-and-such get back to you? Did they set up their safe call? You know, did they, you know, where are they? Are they doing this? Are they doing So it's, like, hurting cats. <laughs> you know, it's, like, trying to babysit everybody and just do nothing but put out fires. And while that's going on, try to take care of people's, like, mental health and physical health. People who already had mental health issues are under more pressure. People who... Um, engage in drug use are engaging in more drug use and people are just trying to deal with the situation you know and it's like a lot of uh, there's a lot of people at risk of suicide there's a lot of people at risk of having breakdowns and meltdowns and things like that and that's just the natural impact of bills like this like that it was, it was coming there wasn't anything else you could do about it like that's just what was going to happen that's the thing the sites that are being affected by FOSTA-SESTA, they're not just places where sex workers posted ads. These websites were also community forums where sex workers would go and talk about their experiences and share bad date lists. Those are gone now, too, because the site's owners were scared of getting sued. I wanted to bring these problems up to all of the people who sponsored this bill. I wanted to see if they knew about the consequences it was having after it passed. No one was available for a sit-down interview. But last year, before the bill passed, I made my way up to Capitol Hill and met with one of the sponsors, Republican Senator Rob Portman, and we had a little chat in his office. In terms of Backpage, we've also been talking to uh, women who engage in selling sex as a means of survival. Do you think it's important to include them in the conversation when it comes to being able to track down who is being exploited and who's doing this as a means of survival consensually? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. And, you know, this is an issue that goes well beyond the discussion about online sex trafficking because <clears throat> the issue of prostitution and the issue of, you know, how you uh, address, as you said earlier, the most vulnerable populations um, has to be part of this discussion. I mean, you know, we've spoken to several women who have said that taking down Backpage means that they won't be able to eat for a week or they'll have to put themselves in more danger. So it's been hard to kind of um, try to see their perspective on what it would do to take it down. Yeah. My experience in talking to those women, and I'm sure you've had the same, is that, you know, once they're out of the grip of either the addiction or the dependency and really, you know, the bondage almost that they have with regard to their trafficker and trafficking, uh, that they see life very differently and that they begin to see opportunities, uh, you know, to go back to school, uh, to reunite with their kids, um, to have a real family life, you know, to be able to have a job where they're not constantly in peril. And uh, so yeah. that's the key, I think, is to provide that kind of support. Um, yeah, this is a, it's a tough issue. 
It is a tough issue. Is there anything that you would say to women who are using Backpage um, without a trafficker or pimp and just selling sex on Backpage because that's how they were going to get their next meal? Yeah, well, I, I would, you know, step out of the shadows and um, there will be help. And they have to know there will be help. They have to know that there will be a community that's supportive of them. Um, Backpage, um, you know, having spent a lot of time now studying this and getting to know their practices and how they operate, uh, they're not looking out for your best interests. All the sex workers I talked to on the Hill say no one from Congress ever reached out to them for their perspective on the bill. We don't really know how much contact there was. But today, on Lobby Day, lawmakers are hearing about it straight from the mouths of sex workers. Women like Laura Lamoon. So I've been a sex worker for... um maybe 15 years now. Uh, I started when I was a teenager in a trafficking situation. Um, So it was, um, originally it was a guy who was like my boyfriend to begin with. And then it just kind of grew into something where like he would force me to have sex with these different guys and then he would get paid for it. How did you make the decision to do sex work after that? Um, Well, it originally came about just out of, like, basic need. So I got fired from a vanilla job, and I needed rent money, and I needed food money and all of that. So, um, and it was like, you know, I really want to try to do sex work, like, just on my own, like, without somebody else forcing me to do it. I want to have that experience. Um, And it was a really positive, empowering experience that was pretty much 180 degrees different than my trafficking experience. You have a unique experience where you were formerly trafficked, and that's something that we found, like, isn't really talked about a lot when there are formerly trafficked victims who are engaging in consensual sex work and where their voice is in all of this. What do you feel like people need to know about your experience and how a bill like this is actually impacting trafficking victims and sex workers? Yeah, well, I feel like people tend to think of sex work and trafficking as a binary. So it's like either or. Um, And actually a lot of people exist on sort of this greater continuum between trafficking and consensual sex work. Um, I tend to think of choice as a trajectory in general. So, you know, it was my choice kind of, to do sex work of my own volition, but I also live in a capitalistic society where I needed to pay rent and I needed to eat, and those things require money. So, um, I don't know, I guess, like, coercion and choice can be a trajectory. For this bill, if the focus is to help trafficking victims and survivors, like, what do you think would actually do that job better? Yeah. Um, Well, I think as little as politicians and other people were talking to sex workers, they were talking to trafficking survivors even less. So, um, I mean, nobody really reached out to me or anybody I know. I myself just got out of a recent bout with homelessness, um, like literally maybe two or three weeks ago. And um, all the other trafficking survivors I know and I'm friends with in Seattle are homeless as well. And I don't think that's just coincidence. You know, our biggest concerns are food, uh, shelter, um, 
you know, trying to get money, work. Is so this since the bill passed? This is in general. In general? Yeah, in general. Um, but I think the... Uh, the greater communities and politicians don't really listen to us when we say, like, my biggest concern isn't being able to sue, you know, Backpage or whatever. I don't give a shit. My biggest concern is I'm homeless and I want a fucking place to stay and I want to be able to eat. But nobody listens to us when we say that. As we're talking, people are starting to head out towards the Capitol. Laura has a meeting with her member of Congress, Representative Heck, from Washington State. She lets us tag along with her, but she's also with two other advocates who don't want us to record them. We head over to the Cannon Building. It's one of those beautiful, giant marble office buildings next to the Capitol. Inside, it's a series of long hallways covered in shiny marble floors, tall ceilings, flags everywhere, and everything echoes. We head upstairs towards Representative Heck's office. He's a Democrat, by the way. How do you feel about going into this? Um, I mean, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm not like a politician, political, anybody. So we're walking into Representative Denny Heck's office right now. He's the rep for Washington State. Walking in with Laura. The group is set to meet with one of Representative Heck's staff members. Eric and I thought we were going to be able to sit in on this meeting, but one of the advocates Laura is with asks us not to record the meeting. She is very nervous, and I can tell. She really just doesn't know what she's going to say when she gets into that office, and she wants this first time to be easy. Which means she doesn't want reporters around. After the break, we get to hear how the meeting went. And we also hear from someone who fought really hard to make FOSTA-SESTA a reality. So, Eric, our producer, and I are sitting on the cold marble floor outside of, of Heck's office. And we planned on going in with Laura and a couple other people, but one of the workers in the group was uncomfortable with... Um, any type of media being in the room while she was talking about this, even if we weren't going to include her in it. And that is not the first time this has happened to us, even today. Um, But that's how this goes when it comes to talking to the sex work community, because one, there is this understandable distrust with the media, but also what they're doing here today is a really big deal. This is the first ever sex workers lobbying day. And it hasn't happened before. And a lot of these people are doing this for the first time. So they're walking into a building filled with officials who have made decisions that they believe have harmed them. Like, I'm, I'm sitting here on this cold marble floor trying to wrap my mind around that. Like, I would be angry. And... 
that was a sentiment we got from some people. Like, people are angry. Like, that's why they've gathered the courage to come up here today and talk. And that's really respectable. So the meeting is going on right now, and we're just waiting for it to be over, and hopefully it be, it's productive, and we'll hear about it shortly. And while we wait to hear back from Laura, let me introduce you to someone who fought for years to have a bill like this. Hi, Jeff. Hey there, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm doing really well, I certainly... This is Jeffrey Rogers. He's the co-founder and CEO of a nonprofit called the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking. I spoke to him over the phone. He was in his office in Tampa, and he's a really big fan of FOSTA-SESTA. So I'm, I'm so excited about what our Congress has just done related to the passage of FOSTA-SESTA and President Trump signing that on April 11th. I mean, it is an extraordinary moment for this country. Uh, Many people that I've talked to consider it to be one of the most important pieces of legislation that our country has put in place to fight trafficking in decades. And so we were a very small part of working on that. But when I talk about our trips up to Washington, D.C., that was our primary focus for the past many, many months, was helping to spread the word, helping to gain influence, helping more and more people understand the importance of why FOSTA-SESTA had to pass. And why do you personally think the bill is so important? The bill is so important because it truly has shut down a very significant number of websites that were blatantly facilitating the sale of sex online. I mean, the unfortunate truth is that before the passage of this legislation, I could go online and I could order a 12-year-old girl to be delivered to my doorstep within 30 minutes. It was that simple. And now, because of what this legislation has done, the websites that I could have easily done that on before have now been disbanded. And so the importance of that in fighting sex trafficking is extraordinary. Because first of all, one thing we have to recognize, and again, I go back to our focus on fighting demand. If we're going to end sex trafficking, we've got to end the demand. But what we also recognize is that because... The demand for selling sex, period? the, The demand for buying sex. And so the individuals who think it's okay to buy another individual to have sex with them. That's the demand that we need to address if we're going to help stop sex trafficking. So our team is actually, we went to Seattle and spent a lot of time with demand abolition. Do you have any involvement with the demand? Because a lot of what you're saying is focused in the same principles that demand abolition has. Absolutely. So I'm great. I'm so glad you brought them up. Demand abolition is the group that also helped fund Val Ritchie. If you don't remember, he's the prosecuting attorney I met when we were in Seattle. He's the one who started the policy of only arresting sex buyers. When I mentioned to you that we scoured the country looking for some of the very best um, examples of, of fighting demand at the community level, it was in Seattle where we went. And so we went to the same place you did and engaged a very prominent individual by the name of Val Ritchie, a county prosecutor there, who really is a rising notable individual in this fight because of all the things that they've done up there. And so we we engaged them, as well as many of the NGOs, the non-government organizations that are part of this. We engaged them up in the Seattle area, 
And they were very kind because basically when we approached them, we said, look, you guys have what we consider to be the absolute best example that we can find across the country in fighting demand. And we'd like to figure out how do we help to replicate that. Is your hope with this bill to work on ending sex trafficking or is it to end prostitution as a whole? So our organization is set up to end sex trafficking. And it's interesting because there is a, I think I'd call it an increasing level of debate around Mm -hmm. the differences between sex trafficking versus prostitution and an increasing level of debate on the legalization of prostitution across the country. And so for us as an organization, we are here to fight sex trafficking. For Mm -hmm. us as an organization, we do not believe in the legalization of prostitution. So very clearly, those are the positions that we take. A lot of the people that I've talked to or come across in those situations also refer to it as survival sex and uh, recognize that like a, a bill that shuts down Backpage actually harms them because that was their way of screening people before they were engaging with them. Is that something that you have thought about or considered? Oh, we certainly think about that. Absolutely. And for me, it really goes back to the issue. And when I mentioned what Congresswoman Ann Wagner said so clearly that the goal was to make the sale of sex online just as illegal as the sale of sex on the street. And so, I mean, our organization is here to fight sex trafficking. That is our goal. And what we do know is that we support the laws of our land and that I do know that prostitution is illegal and these websites are and were facilitating an illegal activity of prostitution. And so fighting sex trafficking is going to be going to the heart of fighting the demand, and we've got to disrupt that demand process. Talking to Jeffrey makes it clear how powerful the prohibitionist movement really is. So many people I've spoken to repeat the same lines almost verbatim. No buyers, no business. That is what's at the heart of this bill. It's killed some of the biggest sites selling sex online. And it's this idea that there is no difference between forced sex trafficking and consensual sex work. But from what I've seen on the road and what I've heard from so many people I've met is there are so many people who are doing sex work of their own free will and they tell me that this bill, it's hurting them. Back in the House office building, the meeting with Laura and Representative Heck's staff, it's wrapping up. Finally, the door opens. <laughs> it went really well. Yeah. I think there was some, like, lively banter. Um, but overall, they were interested, and I'm a constituent, so they have to listen. We leave the office and find a corner in the hallway. All right, how do you feel? Um, I feel really good. I've never talked to a representative before. I mean, it was a staff person, but still, I've never, like, come to Washington, D.C. and talked to somebody about sex work and had them, like, take me seriously and ask me questions and show interest. So it it was really great. How did the conversation go? It went well. There were some, um, uh, there were some moments for me to kind of give my personal story. And um, 
I think that's kind of what I can offer in a situation like this because I'm not a politician. I don't have a degree in public policy. So, um, but what I can tell people is like my story and my experiences. And I just really tried to uh, ask that the representative include people from the community in the future um, when considering bills like FOSTA-SESTA. And even just now, if they want to write another bill to undo FOSTA-SESTA, you know, um, consult sex workers on it, consult trafficking survivors. What was, what was his reaction to your concerns about FOSTA-SESTA? Because they did vote for it. Right. Um, I mean, they, you know, in, in the kind of DC political like way, it's hard to, it, yeah, it's hard to kind of tell like what they really, really think. Um, their job is just to be nice to us, uh, me as a constituent of that representative. But um, I do think they have a lot of interest, especially when I started to, to say about how like I'm actually a sex worker and a trafficking survivor. Um, that's maybe when it became more real to them. Were they, like, surprised? Um, I would say so. I mean, they didn't, like, really... They still had a poker face for the most part. Did they ask about it, though? Um, no, they asked me some follow-up questions, but they weren't, like, personal in nature. Yeah. Did it seem like they had heard from the sex worker community at all about this bill? Um, I mean, of course, they didn't say directly, but my assumption would be that they haven't. Why do you assume that? Um, just the nature of D.C. in general and politics in general. It's not generally a friendly space for sex workers or folks who are criminalized. Um, so, yeah. Was there anything like you were surprised by in that meeting? Uh, that they actually were, like, interested and willing to listen and asking questions. You felt like it was productive? Yeah, I definitely felt like it was productive. And I got their cards and I'm going to follow up and... Because uh, I live in that representative's district, so um, they have to listen to me. <laughs> so where to next? Um, like in a big broad sense or like literally where are you going to next? Literally and in a broad, broad sense. <laughs> um, I think their name is Representative Gomez um, and they're a representative of California. So, Yeah. And where to next, broadly? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Yeah, to be continued. I don't know. I was kind of surprised by Laura's optimism. I mean, the bar is set so low that even just getting a meeting with a congressional staff member seems enough to make Laura feel hopeful. But let's be real. The chances of this bill being overturned are basically zero. And it really felt like to me the sex workers on the Hill today were just being tolerated. I mean, these women took a huge risk by being publicly out as sex workers, by even walking through the doors of the Capitol building. But they were just placated by a 20-minute meeting and then sent on their way with a business card. I get that she's happy they were heard and seen, but knowing Washington... That doesn't really mean anything. So far, FOSTA-SESTA is still in effect. And the sex workers we've talked to, they say they're still facing all of the same problems. I've been on this journey for a while, and I see that it's coming to an end soon. But I still have some of the same questions. 
I've heard from so many people with so many views because of their different experiences. There are so many sides to this complex debate on the sex trade, and rather than getting direct answers and solutions, it's more like gaining more and more perspective because everybody has some different situation. And like you just heard on Capitol Hill, this whole debate, it's very polarized. And at the end of the day, I really just want to figure out what's the best way for me, for all of us, to help. Next time on Sold in America. Hey, I really would love to know what you thought about this episode. Did you have any questions or comments? Did you remember one of your own personal memories or stories? And do you want to share those with me? I'd love to hear them. If so, record a voice memo on your phone of you asking that question or even telling me your story. And then text it to me at 202-804-2480. We'll gather up all of your voice memos and then use them in a bonus episode at the end of the season. Can't wait to hear from you. Sold in America is reported and produced by me, Noor Tagori, with Eric Krupke, Kate Grumke, and Kevin Clancy. The show is edited by Suzanne Reber and Ellen Wise. Our executive editor is Peter Clowney. Sound design and original theme music by David Herman. Special thanks to Mark Fahey, Karen Rodriguez, Aisha Bakshi, and Rick Kwan. We also want to thank Andrew Haig for our collaboration with Ground Source. Sold in America is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producers are Jenny Radelet and Chris Bannon. I'm Noor Tagori. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Noor and Twitter at ntagori. And I'd also love it if you checked out our video documentary. You can find it by Googling Newsy Sold in America. If you like this show, and I really hope you do, don't forget to rate it and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. And of course, thank you so much for listening. Stitcher. You can think of household name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret. Or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was lie. No. (laughs) I still regret that. Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? That before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis. Hitler built a city for the Beetle? <laughs> like the hippie Beetle? <laughs> you can talk about how LaCroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool. And wow your friends with stories of TGI Friday's wild early days as one of the first singles bars. I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, hi, darling, I own this place. That seemed to work. I'm Dan Bobkoff, and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
household name. Brands you know, stories you don't. 